You ready? Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for giving us a precious moment in time to fellowship with each other in this tremendously encouraging family of ours. For that is truly what it is, Father, as you intended it to be, a family. We pray, Father, that our hearts be ever available to each other and that we yearn to reveal our love for one another. For we know, Father, that these times are getting more and more difficult to spread your gospel. We pray that we remain as your word says in Galatians 6, 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls, and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message title is The Difficult Passages, Specifically Believing. This is part five on that sort of sub-series. So we've pretty much finished up our good work on believing or believing passages in the Bible. We obviously didn't cover them all. While each installment of this series, the, quote, difficult passages, will be dealt with sufficiently, the Spirit has not guided me to present a really deep dive on any one concept. Rather, as you've likely already noticed, the idea is to train you to the point where you can walk on your own throughout Scripture. That has been the idea. It's no longer, I'm going to grab you by the shirt, by the lapel, you know, and drag you with me. There was some of that previously, and some of you were kicking and screaming, and some of them even got out of my grasp and are no longer here. But he doesn't want that anymore. Do you understand? He wants you to be able to pursue this thing on your own. He wants you to be encouraged to do so, to read your Bibles as the Spirit's been prompting us for a very long time now. I don't know what else to say. Read your Bibles. Read your Bibles. I suppose, frankly speaking, if I were to, you know, quote, do all the work for you by hand-holding you through every possible passage of Scripture on each one of these topics. Well, let's just say that some of you might end up lazy all over again, saying to yourselves, why do I need to do any work when my pastor's doing all the work for me? Well, this is what I can tell you, the Spirit's not giving you that option. He's saying, no. You's all growed up now. So why don't you act like grown-ups? Stop acting like children. He's telling me, your shepherd, to teach you how to fish. Not just feed you for a day. Teach you how to fish. In many ways, I was thinking about it this way, in many ways, this approach to your education is like building your own personal enterprise. 
your own personal enterprise. As Jesus said, though you are slaves, you ought no longer consider yourselves only in that way. What did Jesus say? He says, no longer do I count you as slaves. Now I call you friends. So rather as friends of Jesus, you ought to take it upon yourselves out of love to go fishing on your own. You shouldn't wait for the invite. You know, I'm the guy who says, hey, let's go fishing. Let's go to the fishing hole, you know, when I'm teaching. Hey, let's go to the fishing hole. Let's go cast a few. Let's see what we find in Scripture. Then when what we find, let's go fishing out there. Let's go fishing for, for souls. Let's go fishing. And the invitation is always from the pastor to the sheep. Let's go fishing. Let's go fishing. Let's go fishing. But I could get run over tomorrow and, go, and be gone. You have to learn to go fishing on your own into Scripture and take the things that are in Scripture and as Christ said in the Great Commission, go out and teach the world. Go make disciples and teach them what He teach or taught you. That shouldn't require a pastor to handhold you. That's no excuse. You should have your own sort of fishing expeditions. <laughs> Seriously. Go to John 15, 14. John 15, 14. Too many of you, I believe, still are acting as slaves. Only slaves. Do you understand what I'm saying? Only slaves. When you're a friend. John 15, 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves. For the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Now listen that you would, keep an eye on the you's in this one verse even, Jesus says, I'm no longer calling you slaves only, I'm calling you friends. In other words, I'm upgrading your status. Okay? I'm upgrading your status. I want you to want to follow my commands. If I command you, hey, go out and evangelize people, then go do it. Not because I'm commanding you, not because you're a good, dutiful slave. We know that's part of the immature believer's walk. But as you mature, I want you to do it because we're friends, right? We love each other. You know where my heart is at. I appointed that you would. In other words, your own person, with your own personal enterprise, that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you Ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Do you see what happened there? Do you see what he did? He no longer says, I'm your delegate and I need to micromanage you. I don't need to do that anymore. He said, we're friends. You know my heart, right? Obviously, he's speaking directly to his disciples at this point, but we're supposed to all become disciples eventually in the sense that we understand this friendship, this fellowship with Jesus Christ. The more we grow up, 
And when we're supposed to have our own personal enterprise, he says, I shouldn't have to micromanage you anymore. Sure, I, I, I gave you an under-shepherd that did just that for you, that fought tooth and nail, that, that sort of, through his delegated authority, dragged you with him, sort of brought you with him, and coddled you along the way. But I don't want you just to be that person, a, a, a reactor. I want you to want to go fishing on your own. I want you to want to go bear your own fruit. I want you to go to the Father boldly before the throne of grace and ask and pray to, for, the, for the guidance. What do I do, Father? I want to do this thing. I want to go fishing. What does he say right there? He says that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. In other words, have your own good standing, intimate relationship with my Father. That's what he wants you to do. And that's what I'm trying to encourage you to do. This has been a huge transition uh, for me personally, right? Because it's like a, and I, don't be upset because, you know, like Bill's like three times my age. So it's like, don't be upset when I say it's like a father saying, and I've, you know, I've gone through this with Joey already. It's like a father saying, go, go out. <laughs> Go fly on your own. Go do it. I'll be here. I'll be doing my thing faithfully. But you need to come on. Come on. Go out there. Go on your own fishing expeditions. Do you understand what he's saying? That's what he's been saying. And it's been, an, it's been a weird, not a weird, but a, it's been an interesting transition even from my perspective. Because that's what he's done. He's matured this congregation to the point where I can teach you these things, where I can point you to these scriptures and say, you know what, you have your own personal enterprise. Go make the most of it. You're not here very long on earth, right? So go make the most of it. Jesus said, I chose you, not just as slaves, but as friends. By grace, remember this, by grace, God changes you. Jesus has chosen you to go bear your own fruit. Up here on the board, the difference between slaves and friends. <clears throat> the immediate difference is that a slave simply does what he is told without any implied explanation. A friend receives intimate details as to why a person is doing what they are. The difference is intimacy. Jesus made his disciples his friends. That's the difference between a slave and a friend. A slave doesn't really know what the master's doing, and the master doesn't necessarily take the time to tell him, do what I say. That's a certain kind of relationship, right? But what does a friend do? The master invites the friend into his house. Now he tells him why. Why have you been doing this? This is why. So now you have an intimacy there. What happens when you now understand your master's plans? you are more motivated, correct, to go do good work. Hmm. Paul wrote about this same concept when those he was writing to may have questioned God's sovereignty. There's always this sort of balance, right? Well, I'm still a slave. Yes, you are. And God can do whatever He wants with your life. Yes, He can. But He doesn't want you just to hold on to that. That never leaves. He also wants you to understand the intimate things. You may not understand everything, 
but he wants to bring you closer. He wants to draw you nearer to himself. Go to Romans 9.20, where Paul uh, reminds them that God can do pretty much whatever he wants, period. (laughs) Romans 9.20. So we can't, in becoming a friend, we can't forget where we came from. We cannot forget that we're always a slave to a perfect master. Think about why Jesus, and just we just read in John 15, what was the uh, premise? He said, because you're keeping my commands. So that's sort of the prerequisite. And a slave keeps the commands of the master. And then once you have that, then you mature into a friendship. Romans 9.20, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? So on the one hand, God is absolute sovereignty. Up here on the board, let me give you another scripture to help you. Absolute sovereignty, uh, 1 Timothy 6, 15b-16. He who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be the honor, to be, to him be honor and eternal dominion. That means he's ultimately absolutely sovereign. Amen. So we know, even being a friend, that we don't lose sight of the fact that we're subordinate, if we're believers anyways. The first point is that God has his reasons for everything, O clay. So ask yourselves, look at verse 22, what if? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Well, whose game is that? That's God's, right? What if? Who are you to question what he's doing? It's not your business. On the other hand, as a right of his own to the Lord's friends, he may choose to disclose more intimate details about why he does the things he does. Look at verse 23. And he did so to make known, he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. You see what he did there? He's going to make things known to you. He's going to tell you why. Well, this is to my glory. This is why I'm doing these things, because everything goes to my glory. I'm God. I think people forget that. I'm God. (laughs) He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Up here on the board, hopefully you see what the Spirit's getting at on this thread of intimacy. Even us whom He also called. This is a reference to, quote, friends of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 15, I chose you, and I call you friends. This is a reference to friends of Jesus Christ, a la John 15, 15. The Lord makes known certain intimate details about his own heart to those in his family. 
Romans 9, 23 to 24. So what the Spirit's been saying, what he's teaching you is, guys, this is, a rela- this is like a real relationship. You know, a message like this, this isn't Sunday school. Do you know what I mean? This isn't like, you know, and I'm like the schoolmaster that's like, what, you know, get in line, get in line. No, this is about learning about the intimacy between people. Not between me and you, even. Between you and the Lord. This is one of the greatest reasons why you all should keep on reading your Bibles. Because He wants to make these things known to you. I only have so much time. But you see, if you go on your own fishing expeditions into the Bible, guess what you get? You get the fruit. Fruit that what? Brings glory to God. The, let's face it. The fact that anybody, let's just compare this group of people to those out there. The fact that any one of you would want to keep reading this book instead of watching a football game is a miracle. No, do you understand what I'm saying? Not you personally, but comparing you to those out there. Taking time to read the Bible? What? No, for real. For real. Why would I do a thing like that? The game's on. <laughs> this is, you gotta, look, you gotta keep reading your Bibles, folks. I see so many people out there scratching their heads, even wallowing in confusion and anxiety. And many of them are so-called Christians. And it befuddles me sometimes. And you know what the common denominator is with all of them? You ready for this? They haven't been reading their Bibles. They haven't. That's the common denominator. It kind of makes me angry a little bit. And you can imagine why, knowing what I know. Because these are the same people who end up complaining and throwing up all over everywhere. Friends, families, you and I. Where's God? Doesn't He love me? Gee, I don't know. Maybe you should read your Bible and find out. Huh? But I gotta take care of my kids. I'll shut up with the kids already. They're not little trophies, they're not little idols. Shut up. Kids, animals, whatever it is, whatever your problem is, drop the idols. Get over yourself. Read your Bibles. Idols destroy fellowship. Have you not figured that out yet? Destroys the good things from God. Oh yeah. Most time? You might as well put a bit stamp a big eye on its forehead. This O world is my idol. Blech. Don't think I'm against kids. I love kids, right? I have my two sons like, dang, Dad. (laughs) That's cold. (laughs) I'm just saying you're not my idols. I don't want to be yours either. That's the whole point here. (laughs) 
So when you have idols, you don't read the Bible, in other words, because now you're preoccupied with the idol, whatever it might be. Whether it has two legs or four. You're laughing, but you know it's true. As we've learned over the last four lessons, some actually have been reading their Bibles, but here's the thing. Even they're not out of the water, so to speak, because they don't believe what it says. This has been the series, right? Believing. They don't actually believe. We've learned through Scripture that not everybody even says they believe are believers. Some people are temporary believers. Some people believe for a time. Some people are in a group, like the Bible talks about lots of times in context. In a group, oh, they believed, a group of believers. But yet some of them aren't. So a lot of people might even pick up the Bible once in a while and they read it and they go, eh, I don't know if I believe that or not. They don't believe because they don't trust in the veracity of the sovereign, almighty King of kings and Lord of lords. You see, this is an issue, my friends, of trust up here in the board. Why won't some people, and this, we started this way on Thursday, why won't some people that believe that parachutes work actually jump out of a plane? The answer, trust. A person can believe something to be true, possibly even for others, but still not trust in it for their own salvation. Haven't you ever had somebody say that to you? Oh, you believe in Jesus and I'll believe in Allah. You believe in this guy, I'll believe in Buddha. You you know, whoever, we all goes to heaven type thing. You believe in that and I'll believe in this. I actually believe that, you know, you, you can go to heaven through Jesus. You'll have people say that to you. Because they believe in like a, a, a plurality of ways to heaven, even though Christ said the only way is through Him. And they be, may believe in Jesus Christ. And they may say, yeah, He was real. And you might find your salvation through Jesus Christ. But me, I'm going to find it through Islam. Or Buddhism. Or some other weird spirituality thing. Do you understand what I'm saying? And all those things are little gospels, little G's, little, those aren't good news at all. They're lies. So this is a trust issue. And for some, unbeknownst to themselves and even others around them, the basic reason they don't trust is because they do not yet possess the, quote, ears to hear. As Jesus often said after presenting a parable, like Matthew 13, 9, Hence the Spirit's encouragement to all of we saved individuals up here on the board on this idea of evangelism. Well, what about it then? The question we ought to be asking people is, what do you believe in? Not merely do you believe. What do you believe in? Most professing Christians will answer yes to the second question. However, they are confused, misinformed, willfully rebellious in some cases regarding Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. So they just want like the goodie bag. They don't actually want the King of Kings and Kings and Lord of Lords. They want the goodies bag. They want the trip to heaven. They think that salvation is being saved from the lake of fire, not from sin. They just want to, they don't want to go there, they want to go to heaven. So they think salvation, the whole idea is that, well, God's going to save you from that and bring you to this, if you just believe these facts about 
Jesus Christ. They don't actually understand that the problem is sin. You have to be saved from sin. Not from the lake of fire, that's a byproduct. From sin. So they don't understand that, and they don't really want to understand it because they like their sinful flesh, and they have never really given it up yet. And that's the difference, folks, what someone believes in. Again, it's difficult to believe in the promises of God if you don't have the, quote, spiritual ears to hear them in the first place. If you're a friend of Jesus, then you'll be predisposed to hearing Him out whenever He speaks to you. Why? Because literally you've been made a new creature. You have an apparatus, if you would. A new set of ears. They can actually hear. That's why Jesus said, for those who have ears, let them hear. But you might not have ears. And so the promises in the Word of God, even if you're reading it and you might not be saved or something like that, fall on deaf ears. You just can't just spiritually praise things and a natural man can't appraise those things. So you see what I'm saying? What do you think this is all about, by the way? All of this work. It's not about scaring people. It's not fire and brimstone. It's not about trying to get people to doubt their salvation. Any of that. It's for all of us to open our stinking eyes and say, what the heck is going on here? What's out there, by the way? Should we just be playing passive church? <laughs> Let's go to church. I got my nice yellow tie on with my pinstripe blue shirt, my nice suit. And you're all, well, used to dressing your Sunday best, but now most of you are like, ah, whatever. Let's <laughs> wear a T-shirt. Headbanger from the 80s. Right? I'm just going to do this thing. I'm going to play church, and I don't really care. La, 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 la. Because, you know, church is the end goal. No, it's not. It's the beginning for believers. It's the equipping for believers. So we can go out and tell people, you have a problem. Not that you're going to hell. You have a problem with sin. <laughs> That's the real question. What do you believe? Well, I believe I don't want to go to hell, so I believe I'd like to go to heaven. No, no. Do you believe you're a sinner? Do you actually, in your, quote, heart of hearts, know how depraved you are? How wretched you are in your own flesh? Do you know that? Do you accept that standing? Because that's the first step. Without that conversation, mm -mm. impossible to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior because you haven't realized that your Lord right now is sin as an unbeliever. You have to have that conversation with the Holy Spirit of God in the first place. You have to be convicted of that first. Not convicted of, oh crap, you mean I might go to the lake of fire? I don't really want to go there. So I believe this, maybe this guy, Jesus, can take me from there to there. But you haven't dealt with the sin issue yet. Go to, again, Romans 9.23. What did he say? He says, I'm, I'm going to predispose you, Romans 9.23, I'm going to predispose you to hearing me out, said Jesus, and he 
did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he called, also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles, up here on the board, even us, whom he also called. This is a reference to, G, to friends of Jesus Christ, Allah, John 15, 15. The Lord makes known certain intimate details about his own heart to those in his family. Again, all of that preamble to this morning's message was to encourage you of this one thing. Read your Bibles. Seriously. If I guess, I don't even know what to say. I'm going to just bite my tongue because part of me wants to take this pulpit, literally, and I could do it because I'm jacked. Pick it up. I don't want to rip my nice pinstripe shirt, though. If I, you know, anyways. Pick it up and throw it. Like, literally. Say, what, what are you doing? If you're not reading your Bibles by now, what else can a guy say? What, else, what, what can the Spirit do to you? What does he have to do? String you up? Honestly, what else? I mean, it's been a year, folks, where this, this has been literally probably one of the top three emphases. If you're not reading your Bible, what, what do you think is going to happen in your life? How do you expect to be intimate? You want me to handhold you again? Okay, let's go fishing again. Anyways, I'll bite my tongue. For example, as we prepare to transition from the so-called difficult believing passages to the, it looks like, I'm not going to say for sure, grace and works. Thought it was going to be repentance, but he said, nope, got enough of that. We're going to talk about grace and works. There seems to be some problem with those two things, like coexisting in the same sentence even, which is completely unbiblical. Grace and works passage. Let us remember, let us remember this encouragement. Go to Matthew 7.13. Matthew 7.13. Matthew 7.13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Up here on the board, the gate and the way. These are depicted by Jesus as two different elements of saving faith. Both are narrow, neither is wide. Today's so-called grace gospel falsely portrays the gate is wide and the way is narrow. This is satanic. Both are narrow, folks. As we learned on Thursday, Satan uses misdirection. It's incredible. The more you learn about the Word of God, the more you watch the way people stumble even in time today. It's all misdirection. Everybody's asking the wrong questions. It's all misdirection. Why are you even worried about that? What are you, why are you even talking about that? Who made you ask that question? Oh, I see. It's from an old religion. Oh, I see. It's from your unbelieving friend. Oh, I see. It's from your doubting spouse. Oh, I see who's asking. I see who's putting all these questions in your heart while you're a little bit anxious and confused. It's because you listen to another spirit. Hmm. 
We know those things exist. Satan's really smart, and he presents himself as an angel of light, so do not be surprised when his agents present themselves as angels. I love you. Just hear me out, sweetie. Hear me out, sweetie. I love you. I love you way more than, I, than that pastor guy loves you that you've been listening to. So listen to me, sweetie. Let me tell you. Let me show you the way. Let me plant a few unholy seeds, questions in your heart so you walk away confused and doubting. That's what Satan does. He's a serpent. And he has agents. And do not be surprised who those agents are in your life, by the way. Satan has done a masterful job of sowing misdirection, even from pulpits, resulting in folks asking the wrong questions. The question we ought to be asking folks is, what do you believe? Not do you believe and walk away. Yay, confetti party. The focus of contemporary Christianity is wrong. It's wrong. Do you believe? Oh, yeah. When did you believe? When I was three. How's that work? Seriously, how's a three-year-old know about depravity? Five, six, seven, eight? How's an eight-year-old know about depravity? I have no idea. I don't believe it. That's between them and the Lord, but I'm not buying it. How's a young person like that understand these kinds of things, their depravity, that they need a Savior? I don't, I don't see how that's possible, but that's between them and the Lord. But I know what Christ, contemporary Christianity says. Anybody who says they believe is now magically a believer. Well, that's an accommodating thing, isn't it? One of the greatest heresies in so-called Christianity today is the attack on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We know what Holy Scripture has to say on the topic as it doesn't take very long at all to find a gospel passage that points to Jesus Christ being preached as Lord. Go to 2 Corinthians 4.5. 2 Corinthians 4.5. It doesn't take long to find these passages. I mean, they're all over the place. They're all over the place, folks. Jesus is Lord. Amen? All right. Either you accept it or you don't. That's just the way it is. 2 Corinthians 4.5. He says, what is Paul? This is Paul. For we do not preach ourselves, but what? Jesus, or Christ Jesus is Lord. What are we supposed to preach? Because that's what he is. He's Lord. And ourselves, as your bondservants for Jesus' sake, for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts, true under shepherds, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Paul stated here, and in so many other places, that Jesus is Lord. And that's who he preached unequivocally. However, Satan, who back in Isaiah 14 said, I will make myself like the Most High, does not want you to realize that. Will use misdirection. Is he really Lord? Does he really have to be Lord? Can I choose later? Wrong question. You either believe God's grace is all-sufficient, or it isn't. 
Satan has done a masterful job of sowing misdirection, even from pulpits, resulting in folks asking the wrong questions. Um, okay, so you're a woman, and uh, for some reason, the king of Egypt says, I want you to be my wife. And you say, cool, I want, I want all your money, <laughs> but I won't accept that you're king. Can we decide that later? He says, what, what, what? No, wait a minute. I am a king. You're going to marry me, right? This, you're going to marry me. <laughs> I'm rich, and I'm a king. Same thing. You don't get to dice out parts of Jesus. Jesus is Lord. And if God saves you through that person, then you get all that person. And if you reject any part of that person, then guess what? You don't get them. You don't get to decide later on the Lord part because that's who Jesus is. <clears throat> Plainly stated, let me ask you this question. <clears throat> is Jesus Lord in your heart? That's the question we should ask. That's one of the questions we should ask after what do you believe? Is Jesus Lord in your heart? Or is he just a ticket from hell to heaven? Is he a hedged bet, in other words, from hell to heaven? Is he Lord? Has God made him Lord in your heart? Has God changed you so that the new creature can't be anything but recognize him as Lord and Savior in your heart? I mean, you can't answer that question, and God forbid we start judging people and say, oh, yeah, oh, you're obviously not saved. That's not our business. Up here on the board, the narrow gate and way, true believing in Jesus Christ carries with it trust in Him as Lord and Savior. That trust never leaves a saved person, which is why, under the most extreme temptation, He has never lost one. Why? A saved person is a changed person. Regarding our current topic of believing, the wide gate and broad way, it's possible, concentrate on this, it's possible to, quote, believe in Jesus, his good name, his good works, his resurrection, etc., and not be saved for one reason, if that person has not accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There's a trust issue based on humility, a, quote, counting the cost that precedes saving faith. Satan is intelligent enough not to attack the gospel head-on. He knows he'll lose that battle. So he, like the serpent he is, slithers underneath it to its very root system, namely grace, and attacks and erodes it there. That's why I gave you this, efficacious grace, fancy term for effective grace, if you would. Grace is perfect. It never fails. It saves and sanctifies. It saves and subjects. It makes new. It changes. Its recipients bear fruit. They persist. They endure. They overcome. They submit and obey. Efficacious means effective, able to produce a desired result. That's what we read in the parable, especially of the soils. 30, 60, 100 fold. Great. 
Either you believe that or you don't. Either you believe that God is able or you don't. If you believe that He can save you, but His grace doesn't include a complete inward born-again result, then you are believing the wrong gospel. In other words, if you think you're just going to get a free trip, but God doesn't have to change you, won't subject you, won't submit you to His Son, the Lord of Lords, King of Kings, then you're believing in the wrong gospel. So says the Bible. The Bible tells us that there's another Jesus, little j. There is another Jesus. There's lots of little Jesuses out there. That isn't really Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. Maybe this other Jesus is just an ideology to someone, like a man that, you know, can save them if they so choose. Maybe this other Jesus possesses the same offices as Jesus Christ. Maybe this other Jesus died, was buried, and was resurrected in the same way. But if this other Jesus is not Jesus Christ, capital J, capital C, the person, then he is merely a counterfeit and unable to save anyone. God will never impart saving faith to a person that believes in a different Jesus Only someone who believes in His Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the one that overcame death itself. Remember, the issue is spiritual death, sin. Not just a free trip. That guy. Only someone who believes in that guy, God will impart saving faith to. Practical speaking up here on the board, the wide gate and the broad way again. It's possible to say Jesus is the Son of God. Demons said stuff like that. Jesus is Savior, or even Jesus is Lord. Pharisees said stuff like that. And not be saved because a human heart can, after believing these things to be true, still not accept or trust Him as personal Lord and Savior. That heart may still say, yes, these things are true, but He is not my Lord and Savior. You see? Isn't that what the world says nowadays? You can have your Savior, I'll have mine. And he'll have her, her, she'll have hers, and he'll have his. And all of us wind up with heaven sometime with this God that sent, obviously, from our perspective, that sent a son that, what, is a habitual liar? <laughs> Seriously, what are, what are we saying here? Either you believe in it or you don't. Matthew 5, 7 And shouting with a loud voice, the demon-possessed man said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. Was that demon confused at all about who Jesus Christ was? Was he confused at all? No. So just knowing the facts about Jesus still aren't enough. Here's what Scripture has to say about Jesus Christ, the real Messiah. Go to Romans 10.9. Romans 10.9. Romans 10.9. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as what? Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. 
Hmm. On Thursday, we concluded up here on the board, why has the concept of believing become, quote, difficult? It's because people have perverted the concept of grace. When God presents his son, he presents all of him. When he gives his son, he gives all of him. This is the fullness of grace. Go to John 1.16. John 1.16. You see, this is what has been perverted. A lot of people don't see this right away. They say, well, how's, what do you mean? Yeah, that's right. Satan does not say, the gospel is wrong. Remember, there was even a, a demon-possessed person that was saying, hey, these guys are teaching the truth about the gospel. And what, uh, who was it? Uh, Paul or Peter said, get, get out of here. You're irritating me. I know what you're saying is right, but you're actually a demon. <laughs> right? So even demons can say the right things. Remember, they, they hide as angels of light, like Satan does. Be careful what you listen to. For, uh, John 1.16, For of His fullness we have received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Up here on the board, grace upon grace means that God showers believers with grace, saving them implies saving them, implies saving them from sin. And I quoted Spurgeon on this. If it were possible for sin to be forgiven and yet for the sinner to live just as he lived before, he would not really be saved. You understand what he just said? He's saying, listen, if you're, sti- if you, if you're still going to live in, under the sovereignty of sin, what are you saved from? If the Bible says, I'm going to transfer you from this sovereign to this one, a slave of unrighteousness to a slave of righteousness. If I'm going to do that thing, if, you, if the very sovereign, the dominion that you're under is actually going to change wholly because the new creature can only abide over here. If I'm going to do that and you're still over here, how have you been saved? What have you been saved from? A fear of going to hell? Is that it? Because that's just an academic thing. Or have you actually wholly been saved from sin? See, the perversion of grace says that that doesn't have to happen at salvation. There's a difference between a person who believes that God is able to swoop them to heaven and a person who understands and believes that his intention is to deliver them, not just from hell, but from sin itself. That's a huge difference. This has been the gist of our five-part series on believing I'm going to look at one last passage before we close out this series, the difficult passages, believing. Go to Acts 8.1. Acts 8.1. I remember having a conversation about this passage in the Bible studies when I was still doing them. And uh, it was good. It's always good. That's the wonderful thing about the Bible studies. You get things out on the table and things can sort of be massaged into the soul. And I'll give you what I believe to be true on this, and it has everything to do with believing. Acts 8.1, Saul was in hearty agreement. Hopefully you know Saul. This is a reference to Paul, the apostle, before his conversion. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, 
And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Okay, so here's the scene. This is Saul before his conversion. Ask yourselves, knowing that Saul in Scripture is the Paul, later on, that penned a good, word, a good portion of the New Testament, what did he believe at this point in his life? What did he believe as Saul? We know that he believed in the Messiah, right? I mean, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. So we know that he believed in, let's just say, the Messiah. Strictly speaking, at least. He believed that the Jesus Christians, the ones of the way, were wrong, and that Jesus was a liar and not the Messiah. He was so convinced that he murdered people. So while he technically believed in the Messiah, he didn't actually believe in the Messiah when he came. If you, in other words, if you would ask Saul, do you believe in the Messiah? Absolutely. Do you believe he's the Messiah, Jesus Christ? Nope. So you believe in the Messiah, this concept that's in the Bible, but you don't believe in, you don't actually believe in the Messiah when he came. Well, I don't believe that that's the Messiah. So you see, you can believe in the Messiah in Scripture, but not actually believe in the person. Sound like Jesus a little bit? Sound like today's gospel, maybe even? It's no different than when someone, quote, believes in Jesus, but when presented with the Jesus, the Lord and Savior, they don't actually believe in him. They prefer a different Jesus. Satan's really smart, folks. <laughs> like, really smart. Verse 4, Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds, with one accord, were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Now there was a man named Simon. So look at the context. There was a lot of rejoicing going on in the city. Okay, A lot of hoopla, in other words. This would have caused one heck of a stir. Think about that. If all of a sudden you went outside to the, uh, you know, the local um, market, outdoor market, what do you call it, farmer's market or something, and there's a guy standing in, people are starting to get healed. Right? You don't know this guy. You don't know what's going on. But people, would that not cause quite a stir? All right, so that's the, that's the scene that's going on here. Now, there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, so this is his attitude. He wants to be someone great, obviously. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. So do you see something there? 
the great power of God. The people that saw him believed that he was from who? God. Obviously, that's not from God, though, is it? Do you see the tangle? They were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed, that's that pistauto again, Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed, there's that Greek word again. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. So you have to ask yourselves, what did he believe? What actually did he believe? And do you think that any, um, you think everybody that's ever been baptized in water has actually been a believer? Do you don't think there was ever a person who was baptized in water in the name of Jesus Christ that hasn't been a believer, that was a false professor? You must be living on a rock, under a rock. Now, when the apostles, verse 14, in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them to Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't say that Simon received them. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon became so famous for this account that there's actually a word named after him. It's called simony. There's actually a word called simony. It's named after Simon in Scripture. I'll give you the Wikipedia version of it, even. The act of selling church offices and roles. The term also extends to other forms of trafficking for money in so-called spiritual things. The practice is named after Simon Magus. Acts 8, 9-24. Simony. But Peter said to him, look at Peter's response. May your silver perish with you. Okay, what's uh, John 3.16 say? You'll have eternal life and no one will what? Perish. Peter says, may your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter. For your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. So Peter the Apostle speaks plainly to Simon about the kind of, quote, belief he supposedly has up here on the board. Simon's beliefs, Peter's rebuke. May your silver perish with you. No believer will ever perish. John 3.16 You have no part or portion in this matter. You're a phony. Your heart is not right before God. You have an unbeliever's heart. You are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. This has never been true about a believer. So what was Peter saying? I know what you believe in. 
You like the signs. You like the idea that you can make maybe some more money. You lost your business when we came to town, didn't you? Because you were the magic arts guy. Interestingly, verse 13 states that even Simon believed. But as we see in Scripture, and as Jesus taught in his parable of the soils even, not everyone who believes for a time is saved. Do you, I hope that's very clear to all of you right now. And I always think about it as conversion. I think about it as conversion. Conversion, from my personal experience and from what I can see in the Bible even, takes time. A person may slowly accept the facts about Jesus Christ, slowly realize their own depravity, slowly get out of their own way. Magus, this Simon Magus guy, obviously was not out of his own way yet. He believed something because there were literally miracles going on. You think every person in the New Testament that saw a miracle was saved immediately? No. But it's kind of hard to say, I don't believe that that just happened. If it just happened in front of you, right? So they stop believing something. But be listen, listen. Believing something does not mean a humble heart that submits. Believing something does not mean that that same person has submitted yet. So, interestingly, verse 13 says that even Simon believed, but as we know in Scripture, people can believe for a time. There's such a thing revealed in the Bible as temporary belief, which is not the believing that results in God-given faith that saves. Look at verse 24. But Simon answered, so Peter rebukes this guy, I mean, straight up. says, I see where you're coming from. I see you. I know what's going on. I know what you believe in. You're not even interested in Jesus Christ as Lord. Look at how he responds. Does he say, I want Jesus Christ as Lord? No, he wanted the ability to make money. Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me, yourselves. <laughs> That's pretty funny, right? You pray to the Lord for me. So that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Notice also that Simon doesn't ask for Jesus as Lord and Savior. Rather, he just asked that none of these terrible things happen to him. Think about it. He just saw miracles, right? Now he's saying, oh, crap. If they can do that, what can happen to me? Again, may your silver perish with you. No believer will ever perish, John 3.16. You have no part or portion in this matter. You're a phony. Your heart is not right before God. You have an unbeliever's heart. You are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. This is never true of a believer. Verse 25. <clears throat> so when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. 
and had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture, which he was reading was this, he was led as a sheep to slaughter. And as a lamb before its hearers is, is silent. So he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate this generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? Verse 35, Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached what? Jesus to him. We don't have all the details, but he preached Jesus to him. And this reminds me of John 5.39 on the board. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. Philip preached Jesus. Verse 36, as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe, there's that word again, pistouo, with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. So we see a different account there, don't we? We see a different account. We see a different context. We see a different believing even that involved the heart. So with that said, that just about finishes the difficult passages regarding believing. I just want to review a few principles and then close. Again, you can sit back now. A matter of trust. Why don't or why won't some people that believe that parachutes work actually jump out of a plane? The answer is trust. A person can believe something to be true, possibly even for others, but still not trust in it for their own salvation. Just because, I mean, let's face it, just even the Pharisees admitted that Jesus Christ was performing miracles, correct? but yet they didn't believe him. Hmm. Trust is essential. Do you believe, do you trust in him as Lord and Savior? Jesus, as you know him. Because you can't just say Savior even. This is where it gets a little bit theological, but let me explain it to you. You can't just say Savior because once you say Savior, which is soteriology proper in theology, it means that you're saved from what? There you go. What about sin? Well, you're born in sovereignty to it, in subjection to it. Are you not? So if you truly believe in Jesus Christ as Savior even, guess what? If he saves you from sin, if that conversation has happened in your soul, then you realize that you've been removed from this dominion, to this one, which makes Jesus also what? Lord! 
You don't get one without the other. That's the whole point. If you understand the objective of salvation, if grace itself hasn't been perverted in your soul, if you understand the objective of salvation, then you have to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior because that's what he is. You got saved from sin. How can you be saved from sin and still live in it? So says Paul. Read Romans 5 and 6. You cannot. A saved person cannot live in that dominion anymore. Why? Because you've been saved from it. So whether or not you use the word Lord or not is not the issue. It's the person. He is Lord and Savior. Hence all the emphasis as of late to drive this point home. So listen up. If you get what the gospel is really about, it's not about a free trip to heaven. It's about being saved from sin. You're born in this thing. He says, my son can deliver you from this to this. He will save you from that, from the results of that, which ends up in the lake of fire if you die in your sins. He'll save you. But guess what happens? Since he saved you from sin itself, from the sovereignty, the dominion of sin, if you know that's the actual argument of the gospel, not some mental ascent crap, if you know that's the true argument about the gospel proper, then you also know when you're delivered or saved from the dominion of sin, he places you in the, under the dominion of Jesus Christ as Lord. Do you see how they're inseparable? Satan's very smart, though. He says, if I can get them asking the wrong questions, what's the wrong question? What do I need to do to get to heaven? That, my friends, is the wrong question. It's the same one that's perpetrated. It's the same slippery serpent approach that's designed to lead people away from what I just described. This whole plan is about moving people from this dominion to this one. Being saved from sin and given eternal life. That's the whole plan. Satan says, I know how to undermine this. I'll sow fear in the hearts of people. I'll send out horrible shepherds that just scare the bejesus out of people. Say, if you don't believe these facts, you're going to rot in hell and burn and burn and burn. Believe. And people are like, oh, I don't want to go there. What's my free tip? What do I do? I just go here. Okay, if I believe these facts and I get this. Yeah. Praise the Lord. Oh, Satan's really smart, isn't he? He asked the wrong question. Do you want to go to hell? Do you want to go to hell? Who the heck is going to answer yes to that? That's the wrong question. Do you believe that you're in the dominion of sin? Do you believe that you're depraved? Do you believe that you're wretched? Not really. Conversation stops there. See, Satan is really smart, people. Really smart. He sows fear. He scares people. Do you want to go to hell? Or, as Jesus said, listen... Do you want to be delivered from the dominion of sin? 
Because sin's the problem. You're born in it. So if I'm going to save you, when I do it, I'm going to take you over here. I'm going to make you brand new. And you will be one of my own. And I'll never lose you. But whether you like it or not, whether it's appealing to you or not, and it won't be to the new creature, I'm your Lord. Trust. A person can believe something to be true, possibly even for others, but still not trust in it for their own salvation. Trust is essential. In God's eyes, indecision regarding Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is the same as the decision not to trust in Him. Practically speaking, from the perspective of the Great Commission, again, how do we evangelize people then? Stop asking the wrong questions, folks. Let's ask the the real question. It's not a tough question. It's the real one. It may be tough in the sense that a person has to, as Jesus said, count the cost, right? Uh, 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 Forgo themselves. Hate, quote-unquote, their parents even, quote-unquote. I hope you understand that. To follow him. You have to get, in other words, get rid of anything that's standing between you and you realizing your own depravity. That there's nothing good in you that you need to be delivered from the sovereignty of sin or else you're going to live in it forever and ever in the lake of fire. That's the real conversation. Oh, God. That's not overwhelming? Am I the only one overwhelmed by this? I'm so mad at Satan. And then I'm so mad at people for being so arrogant. Because God doesn't hold Satan responsible for an unbeliever's trip to hell. The question we ought to be asking people is, what do you believe in, not merely do you believe? Most professing Christians will answer yes to the second question. However, they are confused, misinformed, willfully rebellious regarding Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. The what is in question. There are too many people who have believed in and still cling to a false gospel. These are depicted, the gate and the way. These are depicted by Jesus as two different elements of saving faith. Both are narrow, neither is wide. Today's so-called grace gospel falsely portrays the gate is wide and the way is narrow. This is satanic. The false gospel appeals to the human flesh. It's possible to, quote, believe in Jesus, his good name, his works, his resurrection, etc., and not be saved for one reason, if that person has not accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There's a trust issue based on humility, a counting the cost that precedes saving faith. What a lot of people fail to realize is that while many of the so-called grace gospel preachers are staking a claim to grace, what they are really doing is preaching an insufficient, perverted grace. But yet, here's what the Bible tells us up here on the board. Grace is efficacious. Grace is perfect. It never fails. It saves and sanctifies. It saves and subjects. It makes new. It changes. Its recipients bear fruit. They persist. They endure. They overcome. They submit and obey. Efficacious means effective, able to produce a desired result. Up here on the board, 
Either you believe that or you don't. Either you believe that God is able or you don't. If you believe that He can save you, but His grace doesn't include a complete inward born-again result, then you are believing the wrong gospel. So let us not pervert God's grace. For Jesus Christ Himself is described in Scripture as revealing grace and truth. Up here in the board, it's possible to say Jesus is the Son of God or Jesus is Savior or even Jesus is Lord and not be saved because a human heart can, after believing these things to be true, still not accept, trust Him as personal Lord and Savior. That heart may still say, yes, these things are true, but He is not my Lord and Savior. And to close out this series, why has the concept of believing become difficult? It's because people have perverted the concept of grace. I hope you see it. I hope you see it. Grace is not about a free trip, my friends. Grace is about what God did to solve the sin problem. Do you understand? He solved the sin problem. Satan says, ask the wrong question. Ask, how do I not go to hell? How do I get to heaven? Ask the wrong questions. Jesus made it very apparent. The issue was sin. So if you don't, if you don't accept me, my friends, you're going to die in your sins. That's Scripture. People have perverted grace. Grace says, listen, if, if, if God saves you, then you will be re removed from the sovereignty of sin and placed into the sovereignty of Christ. That's grace. You don't get to hack it up theologically. You don't get to say, oh, no, 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 that's not a conversation I want to have right now. I want to accommodate people by telling them, if you don't believe these things, if you don't believe Jesus Christ, then you go to the lake of fire forever and ever. What say you? Oh, oh, oh my God, what do I do? Run down the aisle? Say it? Say, I believe these facts? The problem is sin. A perverted gospel does not deal appropriately, fully, with sin. It leaves out the sovereignty issue. But grace has rules. This is God's plan, not man's. So you have to ask yourself, why do these things get difficult? It's because people have perverted the concept of grace. They've perverted it. You see? Satan perverts grace. Now the gospel's perverted because the gospel is based on grace. Amen? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. A lot of people keep quoting that. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. There's no such thing. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. That's great. That's true. Absolutely. Thank God we don't have to do anything to be saved other than make that decision, other than have a humble heart, other than understand what the gospel actually means, that it's a sin issue, not avoiding hell. Thank God we understand that. That's true grace. And you know what's funny? It's a greater grace. It's grace upon grace, you know, like Scripture says. It's a greater grace to take a person and move them from one dominion to another. Isn't that a greater grace? 
When God presents his son, he presents all of him. When he gives his son, he gives all of him. This is the fullness of grace. That's all I have to say. It appears at some point, possibly next, I'm not going to say, grace and works, because a lot of these people will say, ah, oh, man, you, I think you're teaching works. Are you serious? Are you serious? We're going to get into grace and works next, as it seems, but I'm not going to speculate because he's just going to, you know. It's just a possibility. I'm just saying. And by the way, I love you all. These messages are from a root of love. There's nothing else I can say. I know they're tough. I know they include people you love, maybe. I know that some of you included you not that long ago, even. I mean, what are we doing here? Either we love one another or we don't. Either we're properly motivated in all this or we aren't. With that said, perfect song for our new class song. Uh, It's called King of the World by Natalie Grant. This is our new pre-class song.
Pretty appropriate, huh? Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you again for this morning's message. For another time to fellowship together with you through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for giving us this precious gift, North Christian Church. A place built with hands that love you, Father. For we love because you first loved us. May our love spill out beyond these four walls, Father, and into a world that hardly even tolerates the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for endurance in the face of hardship, in the face of opposition, and in the face of persecution even. We pray that even if it's but one person that responds and is saved, that we be encouraged knowing that it was all worth it. Every last bit of effort to your glory. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name, by the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.